0: Brought to you by CGTN Europe.
1: The virus was very strange and people did not clearly understand what was going on. So they started to to present um, symptoms, including fever and they were vomiting, and they were complaining, headache.
0: It's been seven
1: years since a mystery illness was first reported in the villages of Guinea in West Africa. And then they started seeing people die in more than one or two in the same house.
2: Wasn't any vaccine, there weren't any experimental treatment, there'd never been a huge outbreak like this before.
1: Within
0: weeks, the virus had arrived in the capital, Conakry,
1: People from the political side attributed it to a kind of a strategy deployed by the ruling government to reduce population. That was the rumour that health staff are paid to kill people.
0: Four months later, Ebola had spread to neighbouring Sierra Leone and Liberia, killing thousands, including many medical staff who were on the front line caring for the sick. And the World Health Organisation had confirmed the outbreak of a new, potentially lethal pandemic. For relief agency workers like Dr. Benjamin Black and Chamba Aruna, it was unlike anything they could have prepared for.
1: Different family members were coming to us asking for chlorine to take it home to, and body bags to bury their dead. And people did not accept the fact that they don't touch their loved ones. We have this culture of giving the last respect to our loved ones when they are dead and they, are, they have to wash them clean, give them a white linen before they are buried. The message is coming from the health staff to say, don't touch a sick person, don't bury your dead. It was really not initially accepted.
2: I think probably the case that really stands out is probably our first first confirmed de case, and that's because she could have been so easily identified as not having had Ebola. It was a real tough call, and it was actually my colleague that decided that she should be isolated first. That that lady very sadly died just a few hours after we isolated her. And, and I was really shocked when, when, when we found out that she had actually had Ebola and the difference that, that our decisions could have made had they gone the other way.
0: By the time the region was finally declared free of the disease, two and a half years later, Ebola had left over 11,000 people dead and the fragile economy of West Africa devastated. By comparison, COVID-19, which was first reported in the Chinese city of Wuhan, has, in the space of six months, infected over four million people globally, leaving over a quarter of a million dead and the whole world in lockdown. While much of the Ebola outbreak took place far away from the world's cameras and its effects were complicated by local factors, epidemiologists believe there are strong similarities between the two, which are being replicated in the current pandemic.
3: When Ebola hit West Africa, it was known what to do, because this is a virus which has been known since 1976. It was known that people with infection were highly contagious, they needed to be isolated. Health workers needed to use protective equipment to make sure that they didn't get infected. It was also known that contact tracing could identify people who might start new trains of transmission so that they could be isolated. And it was known how to manage patients, very difficult, but it was known how to manage patients in isolation facilities.
0: David Heyman is Professor of Infectious Disease Epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Formerly based at the World Health Organization, he spent 13 years in sub-Saharan Africa, where he worked on the very first outbreak of Ebola in the Democratic Republic of Congo. He believes COVID represents an even more complex scientific challenge than Ebola and other previous pandemics.
3: Both Ebola and COVID-19 have had their origins in the animal kingdom and probably in bats because bats are what are known to be able to carry many different organisms and not become sick themselves, yet be able to transmit them through their waste materials. So it's thought in both instances that bats were involved with the origin, whereas Ebola is a slow startup based on contact directly with patients. This COVID-causing virus is a virus which is spread by coughs or sneeze through droplets. So it's spread much easier. So it's indistinguishable in many instances from the common cold or from an influenza.
0: So it's the very nature of COVID that poses the biggest problem. Here's Jonathan Bull, Professor of Molecular Virology at the University of Nottingham.
4: So if you think about a virus that kills the vast majority of people it infects, or at least makes them very sick and very ill, it raises suspicion straight away. You immediately are aware of the virus being around and therefore you can control it quite effectively. But when you've got a virus that on the whole produces uh, mild symptoms, then that allows it to, to spread undetected under the radar. And because you get such huge numbers of viruses and infections, then that means that the number of deaths actually is a lot higher, just simply because of the fact that the virus is transmitted and spread more widely.
0: So what about the hunt for a vaccine? The genetic sequence for Covid that may unlock a possible treatment was established in early January, weeks before the pandemic reached its height. But with Covid now killing more people in days than Ebola did during its entire outbreak, demand for a quick and affordable treatment is reshaping the scientific response.
4: We're hoping to develop them within months, whereas in the past, vaccines have taken several years to develop. And it may well be that we end up with a a multitude of different vaccine candidates that might show promise. And it's a huge challenge to manufacture sufficient vaccine to be able to protect the world's population. And, and so I think that it's it's a, a challenge, not only in terms of science and what do you need to do to generate immunity, it's also a, a challenge for logistics in how fast and how rapidly can you develop and manufacture the vaccines as well as distribute them.
0: The figure for the number of doses that will be required in the developing world alone has been put at over a billion. With such a massive task ahead, Researchers are pinning their hopes on new technology to assist them.
4: So in the old days, we used to be able to use a virus, either a live virus that was attenuated so that it didn't cause disease, or a killed version of the virus that that we used to immunise. But these days, we have lots of uh, platforms relying on a variety of technologies. Molecular biology has advanced rapidly, so genetic engineering. And that allows a number of researchers to try lots of different ways of presenting parts of the virus to the immune system in the hope that it can provoke and develop protective immunity that will prevent you from being infected in future or prevent the the virus from causing disease even if you are infected. (laughs) Myers taking has taken over Celgene in a cash and stock transaction that's valued at $74 billion for announced on Jan 3rd. Adve's acquiring the Botox maker Allegan. Well, it's a $63 billion
3: deal. Company acquiring cholesterol drug maker The Medicines, a company for $9.7
4: billion.
0: 2019 was one of the biggest and most profitable years on record for Big Pharma, with a string of record-breaking mergers and acquisitions. Now, in the midst of the COVID pandemic, activity has come to a standstill. But once the market does get up and running again, the industry will face big challenges, with demands from government, public and private health providers, as well as investors. Already, problems are emerging. When the French drugs giant, Sanofi, hinted that it may give the US early access to its new vaccine prototype, President Macron personally intervened. Elsewhere, the German government has bought a stake in the vaccine developer CureVac, which is based near Stuttgart. It follows press reports of a possible U.S. buyout when the firm floats on the Nasdaq later this summer. So, as the hunt for a vaccine gets political, how will the pharma sector respond? Thomas Kuehny is Director General of the International Federation of Pharmaceutical Manufacturers in Geneva.
4: Everybody wants to make sure that one's own citizens are protected. At the same time, I do see a commitment to solidarity. And the reason I'm optimistic is The EU Commission was leading the global solidarity call together with philanthropic organizations such as Wellcome Trust and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And therefore, notwithstanding that we do have a, I think, strong signal of nationalism, we, at the same time, we have the combination with this call for solidarity, too. But of course, at the end of the day, it depends on the political leaders. Do they walk the talk?
1: They're completely desperate and a lot
2: of these parents have disabled children. These are the disabled children that supposedly the bill is supposed to protect.
0: Even if a treatment is found, there's no guarantee of success. Europe and the US have in recent years seen the rise of a powerful anti-vaccination lobby. Often led by parents, fearful of possible side effects of jabs and suspicious of the motives of Big Pharma, it's led to a backlash against mass immunisation campaigns. So despite the level of public fear over COVID, could a new vaccine face similar opposition? Sanjoy Bhattacharya is Professor of the History of Medicine at the University of York.
5: The best comparison point for me is the smallpox eradication campaign uh, because this was a public health, a global public health success. I mean, smallpox was very visibly horrible disease. I mean, when one had smallpox, one was covered in pustules. one couldn't hide the, the symptoms. The demand for vaccination during a smallpox pandemic would actually increase. People would volunteer for vaccinations, for the smallpox vaccination, because the disease itself was more scary than the fear of the vaccine. And I think COVID, there's that similarity as well. I think people are more scared of COVID than there of the vaccine. So if we do have a vaccine, I I, I really do think that people will volunteer for it. I mean, yes, there'll be some naysayers, but I think there will be a real demand for a working safe COVID vaccine.
0: So when could a vaccine come? Scientists at Oxford University leading the search say they're hopeful that doses of a prototype may be available by the end of summer. A second round of testing on volunteers is underway, but even the World Health Organization is now warning that a single treatment for COVID may never be found, and governments around the world should prepare for this. Here's the WHO's Dr. Mike
1: Ryan. This virus may become just another endemic virus in our communities, and this virus may never go away. HIV has not gone away, but we've come to terms with the virus and we have found the therapies and we've found the prevention methods and people don't feel as scared uh, uh, as they did before and we're offering life to people with HIV, long healthy lives to people with HIV. Uh, And I'm not comparing the two diseases but I think it is important that we're realistic.
4: That may be the case. If we can't develop um, an effective vaccine, then unfortunately you are going to have to put up with the virus in future. It will become what we call endemic, and that means that it will circulate and cause outbreaks in various parts of the world. But equally, I think, you know, at the moment, because it's so early, stage, it's very difficult to just simply dismiss the fact that we might find a vaccine or a cure. We certainly can't be complacent and assume that one will come along, but there are lots of avenues of exploration that are being pursued at the minute. We have some exciting data with one one drug, it's called Remdesivir, it was originally developed for um, hepatitis C and then it was tried against Ebola, and at the moment it seems as if that drug can reduce the severity of disease or or certainly the duration of disease so that people aren't in hospital for as long. Whether or not it can impact on the death rate is is a, a question that remains to be answered.
0: And until a vaccine is found, medical workers around the world continue to battle the effects of COVID with no real treatment in sight. Among them is Dr. Benjamin Black. He's now back in the UK, where he's working at a busy London hospital on the Covid response. His old colleague Tamba is still in Sierra Leone, working in public health programmes in communities that were decimated by Ebola seven years ago. For them both, seeing the pandemic unfold has been especially poignant.
2: I've felt a huge amount of deja vu, feeling that, that we've gone through this before, almost like you're watching a tidal wave come towards you really slowly. Um, you can see that it's coming, you can you can see that there are things that we should be doing before it reaches us um, and and not seeing them happen and that was exactly how it felt in West Africa particularly those early months when when we could see the cases were going up very quickly and and we didn't see an international response coming into effect as quickly as it should have done and certainly with COVID-19 being on on the clinical frontline and seeing that, again, you know, cases were increasing uh, and and the measures that should have been put in place to, to mitigate that increase and to help reduce the, the impact of the infection were coming late. So I think that there's been a, a huge mirroring in that.
1: Already there are some positive lessons learned and then there are some uh, things that we still need to learn. So. All this compulsive hand washing and things, initially it was difficult for us to persuade people. Even when you place water and soap and everything, people will always ignore. But then we are seeing already communities are practicing um, routine hand washing. My message to health authorities at the WHO is that resources during pandemic should not be concentrated on the pandemic alone neglecting the underlying medical conditions that are already killing people.
2: I think that the, the key message has to be that the policy makers and the decision makers need to engage honestly, consistently and with, with real credibility to the wider population. If their message is come late, if their messages aren't clear, uh, if, if their messages aren't, aren't honest, then, then they're going to lose the faith of the population. And that's going to have detrimental effects to achieving what we will want to achieve, which is the ending of this pandemic.
0: That was Science Rules, the first in this CGTN's podcast series, Notes on a Pandemic. I'm Louise Greenwood. Join us next time for The Great Collaboration, Looking at how the response to COVID is reshaping cooperation across business and industry.